The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by Spark Lab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about Spark Lab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. Hi there, welcome to a summer reissue of one of our favourite podcasts this year as the Business's Boring team takes a break over summer. This episode was one of my favourite chats of the year with Stacey Gregg, who has sold millions of books around the world. She shared the process, the strategy and what it's like to have made a special world for all of those readers. Enjoy, and if there is someone you'd love to hear from, get in touch with me on Twitter, at Simon underscore Pound, and thank you for listening and having us along with you all this year. Cheers. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off, with help from Callahan Innovation. Zealand's Innovation Agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. After building a successful career in journalism, specialising in fashion and starting and selling a pioneering online media title, today's guest took a sidestep and moved from the world of fashion weeks and innovative content business selling to writing books for children. It was a leap of faith. The subject matter, ponies and horses, was not in the publishing vogue. But it was something that Stacey Gregg loved, and there were stories she wanted to tell. Her books quickly found an audience, here and overseas, and Gregg is now one of Aotearoa's most locally awarded and most successful international writers, with her Pony Club Secrets, Pony Club Rivals, and standalone novels like The Princess and the Foal selling more than 2 million copies. It was no overnight success. 20 plus years of dedicated and strategic work went into building the audience, market and world of the books. And now, also the TV adaption, Mystic, which is out on TVNZ. It's a great series with an environmental message and the characters and world of the Pony Club Secrets books. To talk what it's like, imagining a world and having millions join you and love spending time there, what goes into being an international best-selling author, the business of books and what's next... Stacey Gregg joins me now. Tēnā koe Thank you for being here. Thank you, Simon. Hey, so first up, um, tell me about your, your start in, in media and in writing. Well, I started as a secretary at um, ACP magazines back in the day, and I was a terrible secretary. I think they fired me, and when I... Um, when I got fired, they found about three months' worth of unposted mail in my desk because once you start down the road of, of not kind of doing your job, 
it's very hard to bail out. <laughs> so I was an epic fail as a secretary, but I'd always hung out with the Metro writers and the Moore magazine writers. And Lindsay Dawson, who was the editor there, hired me back as a, as a staff writer after firing me as her secretary. <laughs> so it wasn't an auspicious start. I don't think I understood how offices worked and I didn't understand the dynamics, but I did know that I really wanted to write. So um, I got super lucky. And then from there, I just kind of worked as a feature writer. I if I'd trained as a journalist in a classic way, I think I would have been an epic fail at that too because I don't think I would have been the ideal to, girl to sort of send out court reporting on regional papers. Yeah, and and was that at, uh, you'd always wanted to be a writer? I think I'd probably always wanted to write books when I was a kid. You know, I did a lot of creative writing at school. As as when you when you when I visit schools now, you know, that's what kids love. They do. You know, it's a big thing at school to do that stuff. So I hadn't kind of thought it was a career option, you know. You don't think of that as being something you can do as a day job. So the next best cab off the rank probably was journalism. And I I probably managed to wedge my way in there in an unusual way. And then once I started, I loved it. I loved working on magazines. I loved the creative process. I loved the environment. And, you know, that sort of 80s and 90s in Auckland was a real heyday for those magazines. They had huge readerships. And um, they had budgets. I got sent places, you know, in a, in a plane to go and interview people and stayed in hotels. And, you know, by the end of it, when I was moving out of journalism, you know, your editor would say to you, we're sending you to Wellington. If you've got any friends or family, you can stay with down there. <laughs> <laughs> Things had shifted. <laughs> the, the, the glory days of, of magazines being a writer, it was like being an influencer, except you also had ethics. It was like being an influencer with ethics. <laughs> Didn't just get you know <laughs> given things and say how wonderful they were. You actually yeah you 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 it was incredible really probably at the age of twenty to have my opinions sort of voiced on a regular basis in in national publications and I I started liking fashion at that point and by the time I was on the Sunday Star Times I thought well if if you're going to have any traction on a newspaper or in a magazine you need to kind of have a specialist area that you're good at because being a generalist. Um, everyone's doing that. And it seemed to me there were a lot of sports reporters kicking about and a lot of people doing business or politics, but there was no one really doing fashion. So um, I just started sort of directing my energy towards that. And by the time I'd, I guess I'd sort of moved into doing the books, by then I was I was a fashion journalist. I was doing Sunday Magazine. I'd been on Style Magazine. And, and I'd started Runway Reporter, which was my fashion website that I launched back then and sold to ACP. Yeah, tell me about that website. As um, that was where I first uh, met, met you, probably working uh, at ACP. Uh, I was working on FQ Men that didn't last for very long, uh, <laughs> but it was kind of um, you, you know uh, great, great fun. So much fun working with Paul Little there, and you and the um, Runway Reporter team um, were, were down the kind of desks. And it is the kind of pro- you know like media product that could be launched today. FQ Men was great, I've just got to say, though, too. And it was such a good product. And it's not your fault that men in New Zealand are not well-dressed enough to warrant their own title. Um, and I think I kind of came into that role where we were we were sitting opposite each other. I'd forgotten those days. Um, I thought of myself as indentured labour at that point because I'd sold Runway Reported ACP. And I was, I was quite excited about that because it was a really thriving website, um, and I really thought that an international publisher would take it to the next level. And I couldn't continue with it because I had been given this fantastic offer to write the books. I'd written this manuscript for the first book in the Pony Club Secret series. 
it had kind of got um, ripped around London by my aid, my literary agent who was based here, but she had, was trying to sell the books to the UK, or the book at that stage, there was only one, but a plan to do more. And I thought it was all going to happen with HarperCollins, and then um, sales and marketing um, it went into an acquisitions meeting, and I didn't understand that there were such things as acquisitions meetings back then, and I think, frankly, neither did the agent, because she told me, yeah, you've got a book deal, and then it turned out I didn't. So I kind of got over that, and then five years later, um, she phoned me up again and said, you, you do have a book deal, and I said, I'll believe it when I see it, send me a contract. And by then I was doing the website, and I was also still working for Sunday Magazine. Mm. It turned out I did have a book deal and they wanted another three books in quick succession. And so at that point I had to make a call and I knew I couldn't do the books and Runway Reporter and continue to work for Sunday and something had to give. And I thought, well, I've just got to sell the website, um, which might not be the immediately logical thing to think. But at that point, too, I thought, oh, you make absolute fortune from children's books. I didn't know, you know that the average UK author made £2,000 a year. And that was kind of a road to penury, not a road to glory. So I backed the books. I sold the website, um, negotiated with ACP, and they bought it. And I really did think it was a great thing, as I as I said. But um, I think then they kind of went, well, now we own a website. What do we do with that? And they were used to print as a medium. Um, they didn't understand. I'd, I had structured the business very much on a... Um, a relationship level where people would be sponsoring sections of the site. We had business partners on board then, including Bank Direct. 42 Below, Jeff Ross came on board very early. Um, he had a gin at that point that he was launching called South that they backed us. And so we, we kind of sold relationships with sections of the site, not in an influencer way, but that they were they were kind of branded heavily throughout. And the wonderful thing about Runway Reporter at the time which literally we had ad, ad agencies not believing us, um, was that we had a site visit duration of 26 minutes, which outstripped every other website in New Zealand by about 25 minutes mm -hmm. <laughs> because most websites, people go on, they read one story, they get out again. Um, we'd figured out, based on the sort of way that at that stage style.com was working in the States and in Europe, that if we had full collections from all the designers and we had a depth of content where people could literally shop not in a commercial e-commerce sense, but could go and look for what they wanted. Basically, women could go and browse every single piece from Helen Cherry's collection and every piece from Kate Sylvester's collection, what was in the stores now, what was coming up soon. Once they were in, they didn't leave the website. Mm -hmm. They stayed for, for solidly almost half an hour. So you're able to put, load a lot of advertising content against that and a lot of relationship content against that. So it was a really valuable commercial vehicle, but... ACP didn't quite know how to monetize it mm. in the way that we had. And a lot of the relationships probably depended on me. So I was kind of tithed in to the whole thing um, for three years. But I, I watched the lack of nimbleness once I was on board. Because when you've got guys in the IT department going... Well, I know it's Fashion Week in Australia, but it's not my job, love. I finish at five. And I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. <laughs> the most important runway shows are on at 11 o'clock tonight, and I need you to load this content because people are going to need to see it immediately or we're just out of the loop and they'll go to someone else's website. And that just wasn't important to them. So there was a lot of bashing my head up against a brick wall. And the books by then had started to kick in. But I do see ACP as literally sponsoring me into a career as an author because it takes a long time for 
um, royalties to start trickling through. So for the first couple of years of being an author, you will be poor. You'll get your advance and then you won't earn it out and then you'll get no more income for quite a while. But then eventually that income started to come through and um, that was when I saw a clause in my contract where I could resign early and I did. <laughs> and I ran, and I think I was only doing two days a week at that point, which I used to get mocked by people like, oh, it's so hard coming in for two days a week. And I was like, no, it, it really is. <laughs> <laughs> and and what, what was it that led you to want to, I mean, having started a um, you know, successful and saleable media property and, and um, you know, the fashion beat is a pretty exciting beat to be on, what was it that was kind of um, driving you to write that first book and ship it around and try and get it published? Yeah, no, you're right. The fashion gig was a fantastic gig. Like, you know, there is not, for a young woman working in media, there is not a more fun job than going to runway shows and getting into the thick of it and talking to designers because it's such, you know, you realise that fashion designers, when you're working with them, they are not just creative entities. They are fantastic business minds, you know, they have to be to keep these things up and running. Um, and so it was a really, you know, it, was, it had so many levels and I really loved it. So the only reason I probably ended up doing the manuscript for the first book was that I had a baby. And um, when Izzy was a newborn, I would try and get myself to meetings. And, you know, oddly enough, it's like that thing where, you know, you're like a duck paddling furiously under the water and you look calm on the top because I would have editors say, oh, you always came in looking so glamorous and together. And meanwhile, I'm like, you know, lactating furiously and exhausted because I haven't slept the night before and thinking, I think I've got postnatal depression. Do I have it? I don't know. <laughs> um, and, you know, always felt bad if I left her alone at home. So I thought, well, if I just knuckle down when she's a little baby and, and maybe knock out a manuscript when I'm, you know, in between feeds. And so in the first probably three to six months of, of being a mum, that was when I wrote the first book. And when I look back, I think that Mystic and the Midnight Ride, which is the first book in that series, is, is postnatally depressed. <laughs> <laughs> which worked in my favour because that's why I killed the pony in chapter three, I think. And um then everything kind of flowed on from there. And I wrote that book in quite a savant way, whereas after that, everything I wrote, I wrote in much more of a how-I-work way, which is very planned and very structured and and really thinking about it. But that book was just me going, bleh. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, yeah, you, you mentioned the, the death um, of, of the pony in the third, uh, the third chapter there. and that, He like, comes back, kids. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, that was, that was a big moment. There were lots of tears in our house. Like, oh, it was, yeah. I'm and, sorry about that, oh, Simon. <laughs> no, no, but it's, it's good. It's kind of like, you know, you, you, one of the reasons you have cats and dogs is so your kids can kind of uh, learn about death and, and, and come to terms with it. Like, it's really important that, Absolutely. Um, that, that, that kids uh, emotionally process and, and come to terms with the the kind of inescapable essential fact of life. Uh, but that's that's quite like, um, is that a common thing in a first manuscript when you're shipping around for um, a kid's series uh, to people? Do you think, and, and that's one of the things that obviously drove huge connection to the books for people once they were reading them. But do you, yeah, do you think those big, big subject matters, uh, that big subject matter made it more difficult to get it purchased first off? Well, if I, if I was writing a book now, I wouldn't do it. And so I guess I'm, quite lucky that I didn't realise there were parameters. I didn't realise I was writing genre fiction when I wrote the first book. I didn't know the difference between literary and genre. I didn't. I'd, I wasn't completely unplanned. I'd gone into a bookshop and looked around and seen what sort of age group I was writing for and, and what else was in that market. Um, but I 
guess I hadn't thought about the fact that, you know, a, a death in the third chapter would scare the bejesus out of small children. I was watching a lot of Buffy the Vampire Slayer at the time and I was completely, I, I've always watched a lot of television and, you know, I'm the bane of teachers' lives because they'll say, what, what should the kids do to be better authors? And I say, oh, watch some TV. <laughs> <laughs> but I had learned a lot of um, my mojo from watching that show in terms of melding supernatural with everyday life in a very seamless way. And that was kind of what I wanted for these books was the idea of this girl whose love of horses is almost a superpower. And so if her bond with her pony is, is that immaculate, he will never be dead. He'll come back and he'll help her. And he'll help her in ways that are kind of, you know, at first she finds it fantastical and then she finds it quite um, reasonable that he's, that he's there. And he's there all the way through as she kind of journeys towards being an Olympic superstar equestrian. And I think they've taken that same supernaturalness that I kind of imbued Pony Club Secrets with with Mystic, the TV series, mm. which has very different storylines to my books. But Beth and Amy, the two um, head writers out of the UK who were working on it, um, we got together in the very early stages and they said, we think it needs to be more supernatural and it needs to be more humorous than your books. And I said, that's exactly what I think too. I think that's the direction we take the television show in. So although they weren't ever going to be doppelgangers of my stories, they are, it's a very different uh, you know, the BBC has built it as an environmental thriller. <clears throat> um, it still has the same, to me, the same sort of heart mm. in that it is about that supernatural bond between a girl and, and, and a horse. Yeah, and a kind of, um, you know, fictionalised uh, New Zealand feel, which is, is like, it's quite cool, you know? Like, it kind of feels like a kind of... Bethel's times, Coromandel times, Township times, kind of um, West Coasty kind of vibe to it, which is which is so cool to see uh, to see on the screens done in such a kind of um, natural way, non cheesy way. I know it's both sort of epic and quaint, which mm. is quite a feat to pull off, isn't it? Mm. Um, and the cinematography is the you know the camera work is gorgeous on that on that show. I mean, I think um, the yeah the the work that they've done, the direction, the horse stunts are really great and you know they really threw budget at it which makes a world of difference in Libertine Pictures who um, who had optioned the books and who are the producers on it locally and Slim Films from the UK they were fantastic to work with they you know they really were, were striving for it to be something that was a bit more epic than you know Girls on Ponies. Yeah, yeah let, let's, um, let's, let's jump back to the series a, a little bit later because that Girls on Ponies comment is a really interesting thing because, you, you know, with, with hindsight, of course it's a big success, you know, girls love ponies and all the rest of it. But that wasn't the case when you started, was it? Like, um, it wasn't in, in vogue. It, it wasn't in the publishing fashion to do stories about uh, Girls on Ponies. No, and I think that was why I thought this will work. Mm. You know, I, I had looked around at the, at the market and I thought, you know, there's, there were, I think there were maybe slightly more junior than me in very generic books like Saddle Club, you know, where they're written by a committee of writers and they just get in jobbing writers. And Bonnie Bryant, who theoretically wrote that series, you know, has knocked out 130 books and none of them were written by anyone in particular. Um, so, But there was nothing that had that sort of heartfelt, um, real clear voice of something that I'd grown up with, like I'd read the Jill books when I was a kid by Ruby Ferguson, um, or The Black Stallion by Walter Farley, that series of, of books. And they were so strong in my mind as these, you know, key stories for me in my childhood. And I thought, there's just nothing there. 
that's always a danger with writing. If you look at a market and go, there's just nothing there in this genre, I'm going to do it. That might be because the world is waiting for you to be the first person to do it. Or it might be because no one wants to buy that anymore. <laughs> and I know that when I first wrote the books and HarperCollins had editorially loved them and it had failed at the acquisitions meeting because sales and marketing had turned around and said, well, there's just no market for pony books. And then five years later, driven by them, that was when they came back to me. We've decided we need a pony book mm. and we're going to go with the pony series again as a genre. And at that point, after the Pony Club Secret series was published, uh, there seemed to be then a groundswell behind that. You know, there were a lot of Me Too's. Um, Katie Price did her series of sparkly pink pony books. Pippa Funnel um, got launched and you hear locally, of course, Kelly Wilson's books, um, which Penguin had definitely looked at what was happening at HarperCollins with me and gone, well, you know, Kelly's got the TV show and she's, you know, and is, you know, fantastic at getting out there and talking to the kids. Let's do a series with her too. So there was definitely a movement then. Pony books then became a thing. But you wonder how long a trend can last. And that was always, for the first few years, I'm like, how much longer can I keep doing this? Mm. <laughs> but like the Rolling Stones, how much longer can I keep touring? <laughs> <laughs> the, um, well, well and, and that kind of, um, the, the building of it as well, like, like the market that you're talking about there, um, you, you know, that very specific age band and the like, and the way it's marketed, I've seen it really interesting, the, the way that you've talked in the past about, you know, there are books for boys and there are books for girls and there aren't often crossovers at that age. Uh, but the actual content matter often feels a lot more universal or a lot more kind of grunty than the very pretty covers. But is that just all kind of like a part of just the marketing and expectation of how these things are presented? Yeah, I, absolutely. You're completely correct. Crossover is the holy grail. I think I've said that before. Um, the ideal is to be J.K. Rowling and have a book that sells as much to, to boys as it does to girls. It's inv incredibly rare to be crossover. You know, David Williams is, is positioned for boys and girls buy them. I'm positioned for girls. Do boys buy them? Probably not in quantity. The content that's inside isn't reflected by the sparkliness of the jacket, but sales and marketing know their business. And you, you've got to you can't just be generic. You've got to put something on the cover. You've got to, I guess, nail your colours to the mast. So they go for where the market is. And my market predominantly is 8 to 12-year-old girls for the standalones and for the Pony Club Secrets and Rivals books. So that's the jacket they go with. And, you know, when, the, when they showed me the original jacket for The Princess and the Foal, when that was my first standalone, which is the one that's based on the real-life childhood of Princess Hire of Jordan, and I had imagined it being a dusty, windswept sort of Lawrence of Arabia epic and it would be in some muted sepia tones. And I burst into tears when I saw the bright pink cover with the sparkly tiara on it. I was like, this is exactly the sort of bollocks that this book is not. And then you just have to take a deep breath and listen to the editorial team when they're trying to talk you down off the cliff and saying, look, right now Michael Morpurgo's books look like this and David Williams' books look like this and if we're going to get any cut through in W.H. Smith this punchy pink cover is going to work. You have to trust us. And now I love the cover, and the cover is iconic. But at the time, that was not how I imagined my book being represented. And then you just learn to kind of, you know... Yeah. I, I learned, I think, to go... I, I'm not the head of everything, although, you know, I like to think of myself as the head of everything. And you go, well, sales and marketing know what they're doing. They're seeing an entire... I'm seeing a small section of what matters to me... They're looking at the entire market and they're talking to retailers. 
they must know what will work, mm. and I have to, I have to listen to them and and work with them. And once you get your head around that, you kind of yeah. don't burst into tears every time you see a cover anymore. <laughs> and, and pink and sparkly and tiaras can be super strong, like the characters in the book. And I saw that you'd written something, you'd said somewhere that the whole world of pony, cub and horse shows is very female skewing. But it's not female skewing in some kind of, um, you know, effeminate way. It's female skewing in running these enormous great beasts that are so strong and powerful and potentially volatile and, and running them all with just like calmness and aplomb and kind of owning it all. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were ta- I was talking about my publicist with my boyfriend yesterday and he said, I said, oh, you know, she's the one that broke her back in the forest when her horse threw her into the tree. And he said, oh, the one in the full body cast. I said, no, that's my other friend who broke her back <laughs> in the forest last month. Yeah. And I mean, that's the truth of it. You're getting on Dangerous wild creatures that weigh six hundred kilos. What you know? What does that involve? And it involves trust and involves love, but it also involves being a total hard ass. Mm. And these women are going to a horse of the year show. Their husbands aren't driving the horse trucks. Their sons aren't driving the horse trucks. They're driving the horse trucks. So you have to have an HT license. You've got to be able to load six horses into a truck and get from Auckland to Dannyburg you know, without a coffee break because the horses are starting to kick the hell out of the horse truck and get them off at the other end and no sleep till you've kind of got them all penned and yarded and sorted out. And if you have a daughter and you're doing that with them, I I would argue that sets them up for just about anything else in life that they want to achieve because you learn um, respect for animals, you learn self-management, you learn all those things that they're trying to teach you at school. You learn initiative, you're learning to toughen up, really, too, and to, to never think that your gender is limiting you. Um, and those things just happen organically when you're around horses. They're just the most wonderful, um, empowering tool for women and for, and for, you know, men as well, for young boys. So it's a, it's, it's a pretty special thing to be involved with, and the people are so tough. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found myself, I'd, at one point, I'd taken my horse down to Gisborne for a month on holiday. I'd, I'd had breast cancer. Um, it was not long after I sold Runway Reporter, actually, as it happened. And I'd had a double mastectomy, and I was still quite scared of being on horses again. I wore my back protector all the time, even on the ground, because I was worried about um, about getting bashed in the chest or something. And I went to stay with these people who ran a stables down on the beach, and they were so tough. The day I arrived, Sarah was um, working her horses, and she only had one boot on because her other foot was so swollen from a whitetail bite that she couldn't get a boot on it. But she was still working all the horses. And her husband had been knocked off into the round pen the day before by a bronc and had gone through the wall of the round pen. And he'd just um, he'd had a spiral fracture in his arm, but he needed to keep riding the polo ponies. So he'd got a um, barbecue tong and he'd strapped it to his arm to as a, as a makeshift a splint. splint. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at them both and I thought, you know, I just need to get tougher. (laughs) Ingrid's from Gisborne. I can believe it all. Tough as. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, you know, that is the gift that horses give you. You know, my daughter laughs at the fact that she's had so many concussions now that by the time she'd get to hospital, I'd be like, I just can't even remember. Do we have to go to hospital this time? How many fingers am I holding up? You know, and then a couple of days later when she kind of, everything's still blurry, mum. Oh, right, we'll go. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and that, that, that big bond between people and horses, which it kind of does lend itself to kind of the mystical kind of thing, uh, isn't it? It's, it's such a co-evolved kind of bond in a way that 
you know, dogs can be strong, but horses, there, there is something quite magical about the way people and horses interact. And you can that's ride totally them. totally fascinating. Yeah, it's wild, it's, isn't it's it? It's unbelievable. And you can go off and have these big adventures and you can jump over stuff. And yeah, I mean, yeah, like you can't have an epic adventure with a chicken. You can have an, <laughs> an epic adventure with this huge beast that, and it takes you away from the parents. And the first rule of children's books Get them away from the parents. That's why Harry Potter's at boarding school with dead parents. You know, it's not a coincidence. You get them away from the parents. And the odd thing with horse books, of course, is, you know, my mum would never have let me go to Pony Club by myself. (laughs) But all the kids in my books, they're off, you know, riding through the wilds of Iceland or whatever. And, you know, their mum doesn't know where they are. (laughs) Yeah, let's talk about the... the, the stories as well as, um, you know, one of the really cool things uh, that comes through in the books and in the way you talk about them and the like is the kind of love for the process of researching it and falling in love with the um, the characters, uh, whether they're historical, uh, the locations and, and, and the like. Like, it feels like, um, yeah, like, like t- tell me about your approach to writing them and how you kind of make it so it's so enjoyable. Um, well, I think with the series, uh, that... That was kind of definitely planned out in an arc in the same way that I felt TV shows were planned out. And I had this plan to take a girl from being an ordinary pony club kid with a supernatural connection to being a world-class, top-of-the-world equestrian, which is what every pony club dr- kid dreams of, basically. You always, you know, you and your little pony club trotting around narrow, pony trotting around narrow her pony club, you think you're going to be Mark Todd one day. Mm. Um, the absolute lack of courage and talent doesn't occur to you at that point. <laughs> Um, so that was the, those books. And then when I started doing the standalones, I think because The Princess and the Fold had kind of set that template of taking, in that case, an absolutely true story and just literally translating it to fiction, that gave me a way of moving forward with those. So with the books after that, I always based them very much on true stories. Um, frequently I would do dual narratives, so I'd be weaving a, an historical strand that connects to a modern day story. Um, the most recent one would have been the um, Prince of Ponies, which is the one that's set partly during World War Two in Poland in 1939 on a um, Arabian horse stud, a, a real Arabian horse stud called Janow Podlaski, which was um, when Poland was annexed, it was kind of trapped in between the Russians and the Germans. So I've got this girl on a journey trying to, to rescue her priceless Arabian stallion from you know, the approaching Russian army who are going to eat it versus the Nazis who want to take her horse for a secret breeding program that a a, um, guy called Gustav Rao, who is Hitler's master of horses, who was a real-life man and really did this, um, they're trying basically to practice eugenics with the horses and they have two secret horse studs set up and they're trying to take her horse and in the end she's going to have to face off against Hitler to get him back again. And in the modern-day story that matches up against it... um, where she's she's met up met up with a woman in a forest, this little girl, and she is a Syrian refugee, and she's in Berlin, and she's trying to kind of reestablish a life for herself after what she's been through, and she wants to become a famous show jumper. So these two stories kind of work in parallel and mesh together, and that is frequently how I'll work with the standalones. They will be a dual narrative that kind of you know brings a genuine historical story in with a modern day story that also is very factually based. Yeah, and the the content, you know, like from death uh, and, and big themes in the first one uh, of, of loss and fear and the like, and then through to these things where you've got refugee crises of today and the Second World War, you know, like 
you're really talking up to a 12-year-old audience, eh? Yeah, which is why, you know, I think the last book awards I was chatting to an author and she said, oh, you're the pony book girl. And I'm like, <laughs> I wanted to say, I find that a little reductive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, because they are, ponies for me are just a gateway drug into getting kids into these, you know, great, and kids want to learn. Mm. You know, they love the historical storylines. They love being able to come away from things and saying, I know more about horses now and I know more about, you know, with the fire stallion, which is the one that's set in Iceland, that's, you know, got a Viking sort of base to it. And so I'd be going, when I was researching that and I was in Iceland, I went to Thingvalla, which is where they had the Viking parliaments. And, you know, for me, um, writing the books is my way of learning geography and history too. You know, I'll be doing the Empress Catherine the Great in one book and Viking folklore in Iceland the next. And so... You know, it's very hard to get bored with that. I'm not just turning out a pony book every time. Yeah, and if it's not exciting and, and gripping for you, then how will it be for, for the reader? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so how, how does the... Um, so, so jumping back a little bit again, so you got the first one and, and then a, a deal for a few more to come through. How does it actually work on the business end of things uh, to, to, to set out and be an author? Because, yeah, talk us through kind of like... You know, is is it kind of like per book sold, and is and how many books do you have to sell for it actually to start making sense? Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I will often have people, lay people who aren't in the business, say, "Oh, you know, I, I bought your book from Whitcalls, and so if your book is twenty four dollars in Whitcalls, um, you must get twelve ninety nine of that, or you know, somewhere in that." And it's like, no, probably if you bought my book for twenty four dollars at Whitcalls and it was at full price, I probably got a dollar, realistically. Um, and that's only under my, the new royalty structure that my agent, who is, I now have a UK-based agent, and she had to renegotiate my royalties to be based on um, New Zealand being my home market for books, because up until that point, it was a net um, international market. So it would have been more like 50 cents a book if I was lucky, maybe 25 cents. So you think that an average bestseller in New Zealand um, is between five and 10,000 copies, and you do the math on the fact that I get 50 cents a book. I'm not exactly earning out those royalties at a rapid pace. And what you do with books, you get an advance. And the advance is dependent on how much they think, how many books they think you will sell. Then you have to earn out that advance. And then you start making money on top of that. And then you start getting royalty checks on a six-monthly basis, which I think they strap to tortoises somewhere <laughs> and, you know, poke them with a stick and say, go onward. Because it, it is a long time between drinks um, in terms of when you get a paycheck. I, I was just thinking the past couple of months I haven't been paid for anything at all. So you have to be kind of prepared for that as, as a... Um, a way of working that it's it's very feast and famine, um, that you ne- really need to have at least I would say eight to ten books in the market for you to be getting enough royalties for it to be a living. And even then, I would say you could count on one ha- well two hands maybe the amount of authors in New Zealand who work and live purely off being an author. Mm. Um, so you know it's 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 not. It's not an easy career to to make your fortune in. Well, and how many of those authors would be relying on New Zealand alone? Because you've been global from the get-go, uh, which I, I imagine helps if, if it's only five to 10,000, which is 
a wildly small number for a bestseller in New Zealand, five to ten thousand. Yeah, you have to be, you have to be international because the, the market here is simply too small. Um, so yeah, from the start, I was published out of the UK, and that was my primary market, and this was a secondary market for me, and as was Australia. I, I'm I'm still selling relatively small numbers in Australia because they are very parochial there, as we are too, and they don't really favour New Zealand authors. Um, Foreign rights deals are important, film rights deals are important, but lots of authors will will never get those deals. It depends on what their books are like. And, you know, there are two business models, I think, very much functioning. And one is the literary model in which you get, um, you apply to Creative New Zealand or other funding bodies and you get grants for producing your work because it is considered to be of cultural merit um, and importance to the New Zealand vernacular. Or you operate within a commercial model, um, as I do, and you produce books that make money for your publishing house and therefore your publishing house push them forward into the market and you make money purely from selling books to children. Um, You know, both of those models are valid, but they very seldom intersect. And it's been interesting because Nikki Pellegrino, who last year had the biggest selling book in New Zealand, and would admit that she struggles to make a living from it, having, you know, also is UK-based um, in terms of her publishing house and sells more copies here than any other um, New Zealand author. But still, it's 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 tough. And her and I did a podcast together called Book Bubble during COVID um, at level four and level three when we were locked down the first time. And we started talking to other authors and... Um, it's interesting to watch the, the different ways they work. You know, some of them have obviously, their careers are based on funding. And mm. um, there's there are some who are working commercially, say like, like Nalini Singh or um, Charity Norman. or we, And we tried to talk to some of the ones that were not working at that literary end necessarily because they seem to be frequently quite ignored by media. Um the, the only exception I can really think of that kind of straddles the two things would be Elizabeth Knox, who receives numerous grants but is also very commercially successful and has, you know, international sales and has had film options exercised and things like that. But that, that's incredibly rare to be in that position she's in. And I think she probably feels, and she did when we were talking to her, she'd just been overlooked for the shortlist for the Occam's. Um, for the Absolute book, and we were like, wow. that's quite surprising. But then you, will, if you read the Absolute book, it is very fantasy-driven, and that's really not the meat and potatoes of the Occam's. They would not consider that literary, but she would. So there's that real... She's she's one that really does rest in that strange middle place between the two, and sometimes I rest in that middle place too. I'm always nominated for book awards, mm-hmm. Um and I feel very much a part of that children's book community, but there's a slight isolation in that I am so commercially um, motivated as well. Isn't it interesting? Because a lot of the, the way you describe it has parallels to the music industry. And in music uh, in New Zealand, you know, the funding bodies support things that are popular to help them get a foothold against the massive waves of international culture that would otherwise, you know, wash out the New Zealand voice. But not so when it comes to the popular side of things, which is such a funny term, but, you know, the popular side of things in terms of um, publishing and and writing. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we recently, 
we had a delegation go to Leipzig, or was it for Frankfurt for the book fair? This is about five or six years ago. And I, lo- I looked at the list of authors they were sending, and I thought, well, none of these people are going, to my mind, will get international sales from this trip because they're books. And I think this is, this is shifting. I think indigenous um, literature is a bit more of a commercial thing internationally now than it was. But I looked at that list, and I thought, well, you're not putting the commercially viable authors on it. You're putting the authors on it that people should want mm. the, 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 to tell our New Zealand stories internationally. And I can understand that on a emotive level, but on a practical level, will that work? And you know, and weirdly enough, now I mean, if you look at my books with, at Pony Club Secrets, which were always considered to be genre, and they weren't considered to be probably promulgating that New Zealand fiction, but then you look at the series that's been done with the BBC, yeah, yeah, yeah. and how utterly iconically New Zealand that is, and it's literally an advertisement for our country mm. um, from an author that wouldn't have been considered to be fulfilling those parameters um, to get funding. Yeah, it's interesting, <laughs> isn't it? Because the, the, the high lows... And I, I say that without, you know, it's not grudging. No. It's, just, it's just interesting that it can't be seen that to be commercially successful might actually in the end reflect a real New Zealandness mm. in the way that it, it gets out there into the, the world. If you love the spin-off, the best way to show it is to become part of the spin-off members. This is the fund that helps us keep free and accessible to all without a paywall. It also funds some of our most important and acclaimed journalism. Check it out through the spin-off. Yeah, and with film or music, uh, you have the support of the um, the things that are aimed with a commercial uh, edge to them because you want to help that kind of export and do well and be a driver for the country. And it's funny that the writing, um, it kind of falls in, falls in some kind of gap because it must be tremendously hard if you're having to um, build up a library, a, a catalogue of 10 or 12 books uh, and you're living from advance to advance and you're selling five to 10,000 books a year and making five to ten thousand dollars a year um <laughs> that 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 cuts it out for a lot of people to be able to really pursue it yeah i it, it and it was interesting when we did the podcasts for book bubble i it, i was every single author we spoke to felt that they were the overlooked um underfunded ones <laughs> so i think it's basically just a really tough business to be in um and you always feel like you're producing your best work and that you know that 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 has gone unrecognized i don't feel like i've that i don't feel like i've gone unrecognized i feel enormously lucky um and you know but the luck has come from as as usual from hard work and from planning you know like i i have always approached what i do as as i did as a journalist as as a business and um i i look and see what you know what's happening next if i am going to be the pony book girl, where do those pony books go? Because, you know, once I'd done the two series, um, the standalones, then then for me I started pushing into that because my um, the head of HarperCollins in the UK and Children's Division and I had gone out to dinner and I was in London and she'd said, look, we feel like series fiction is not selling in bookshops anymore. We want you to move into literary and what have you got for us? And that was when I bought her The Princess and the Foal and from there we started working through the other books. Um, then as I started to feel like the standalones, because I'm, I'm just, I've just finished my eighth one, the, mm. the Forever Horse, which will come out in October. 
which is set in the Camargue and in Paris and in London. And I felt like with eight books under my belt with that, that was enough of those. And then you sit back and you think, well, what, what next? And meanwhile, I'd been doing the Mini Winnie Picture Book series with Scholastic here, which I had loved doing with Ruth Paul, the illustrator. And her and I were really good friends. We'd met on a Storylines book tour and we just instantly got along. And I loved her work. And I thought, well, I'd like to work with Ruth. So when Scholastic approached me and said, let's do some picture books, and you know, we'd like to do it about a heroic miniature horse who saves all the other horses. And I said... Let's do it, but miniature horses, in my experience of being around horses, are little shits. <laughs> so can we do one around that instead? And that was how Mini Winnie was born. And then I started working with Ruth on those. And we're, our third one has just been published. Our fourth one is, I've written it and Ruth's illustrating it at the moment and it'll be published next year. And then I thought, well, now there's a kind of gap in the market for me. That book is for sort of three to five-year-olds. Um, Pony Club Secrets is sort of the 7 to 12. The standalones are slightly older. There's a little area there, sort of 5 to 7-year-olds, of early chapter books that are much shorter, um, much more basic in terms of vocabulary and in terms of plot, um, but still very much driven by plot. Even my picture books are very, very plot-driven. Um, there must be an opportunity there. So I started to work towards coming up with a series. And for the first time in ages... I wrote a manuscript on spec. Normally I, I have got to the point with HarperCollins where I would write to order. They would say, you know, what's your next book going to be? I'd give them a plot, an outline and they'd go, so be it, here's your advance. This time they didn't have any idea um, that Spellbound Ponies was coming. So I just sat down, started playing around with some ideas, figured out a plot, worked quite closely with my agent who kept reading it and saying, do you know what, Stacey? It's still not quite there, is it? <laughs> and I'm like, oh. <laughs> so I did that for a while, finally got it to where she went, yeah, I think it might be all right now. <laughs> um, and so now I'm on book three of that, and that they will come out in April next year. That's the other thing, of course, publishing has incredibly long lead times. So, you know, I'm... I'm I've been working for a year now on a series that will be out in 2021. And by the time the first book comes out, I'll probably have written six of them. And then I'll be looking for what the next cab off the rank is um, with being the pony book girl. What, el what else can I kind of take that to? That for me feels fresh too, that I'm actually, I'm, I have loved writing the Spellbound Ponies series because they are completely comedic and irreverent and not what I usually do. And I would have not believed that I could or wanted to write those books a couple of years ago, but you kind of get yourself into a place where things can work. Mm. And then I've been doing the scripts for Mystic as well. I've written a couple of the episodes for the first season. Oh, wow. And in terms of that 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 um, production of it, like, that's a lot of, you know, it, it, it sounds like from the outside a lot of books to write, you know, because you mentioned that, um, you know, some series have groups of writers who kind of, put, put you know, churn them out. Uh but doing six books over a couple of years, like, how do you physically do that? Like, how do you um, go from a blank page to, to getting the book out? What's your discipline? Well, I would probably think Donna Chisholm at the Sunday Star Times, who stood over my desk and went, you know, we need 2,000 words by deadline. <laughs> and deadline is in half an hour, you know. And so I worked really fast when I was on newspapers, and I continue to work really fast. And I like having deadlines, and I set myself deadlines, and I'm... I am prolific, but I, it's because I have to be. Um, and at the same time, Nikki Pellegrino always jokes that my my um, 
my weekly schedule seems to mostly be made up of facials and drinking wine and riding my horse, and somehow in between that a book happens. And that's how it feels to me too. I don't feel like I'm under the cosh. And I, you can't when you're writing. I mean, that was why I actually had to quit ACP and, and Runway Reporter. You can't kind of, you can't feel like you're not free to do the work. And I do feel like I'm free to do the work. I keep my own timetable. I know the times of day I work best. If I'm working on a book, I will be writing early, fresh chapters in the morning when my brain is fresh and editing in the afternoons after I ride the horse because I don't need as much focused ability at that point to kind of tidy stuff up. If I'm writing scripts for TV, it's a completely different energy and I will sit down as soon as I've got, you know, the, the beat sheet and the notes to start working on the script and I will probably hammer it for 10 hours straight, which is not at all how I work on books um, because it just seems different when you're working on television. It just kind of comes out in different ways. But I, I have a work ethic and it's based, based mostly on fear and greed. Yeah. <laughs> like I want to keep being able to do what I do and to do that I have to be um, always looking to the next thing and, and working hard on it and I don't want to be Bonnie Bryant and the Saddle Club and have other people writing under my name and producing substandard work mm. I want the books to be good and if you know and there's actually no way to clone myself off and have other people do it I've got to write them some of the things that you've mentioned in the chat today have really made me think about musicians, you know, like you're on you're on tour, the Storylines tour, and, you know, like, is it a bit like, and, and I remember, like, if I think back to when um, Margaret Mahi came in to, um, to my primary school and she wore this, you know, um, rainbow wig, and it was one of the biggest days of my life, you know, like, is it a bit like being a musician and you're on tour and you tour some of the hits and people love it and, you know, and, and you've, you've got a bit of merch that you sell and is it is it a bit like being a musician? Probably, you know, different levels of debauchery, but... It, well, yeah, it is like the world's lamest rock tour and I br- very briefly was a rock journalist for RTR Countdown magazine and um, did tour with a couple of bands and often when I'm, and I will often when I'm, touring now for the books and I'll you know you'll do three schools and an in-store and maybe something in the evening as well in a day and then you drive on to the next town and I will find myself feeling very spinal tap you know and saying hello Cleveland (laughs) to myself as I go in it is totally (laughs) (laughs) a lot of the sales come out of the smaller centres don't they yeah and it is just like it is for a band touring works I think the reason that um, my brand is quite big in New Zealand was that HarperCollins toured me really hard for a long time every I would do at least a month of touring, maybe two months of touring every time a big new book came out. And that would be schlepping myself around to, you know, Greytown and Featherston and Masterton and then mm. down to Wellington and then, you know, doing a South Island leg. And yeah, it, it's, it is exactly like a rock tour, except you are by yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and there is absolutely no fun. <laughs> it's like... Eight, like you know, so so just before um, just before this interview, Stacey kindly um, uh, met my children, uh, dear listener, uh, my two girls who are absolute massive fans, and just the kind of joy and brightness and just enthusiasm, and they were so excited. And it must be such a lovely na- age between eight and twelve year olds to have the fans be so kind of like pure and earnestly enthusiastic and excited. Oh, it's lovely because I, I don't write YA. YA is the next step older than me, that sort of twilight, um, 
Hunger Games age. And by then they're sort of cynical and they're unimpressed by you and they're like, oh, whatever, I don't care. Um, but the, the age group I write for is still completely heartfelt and open. And I, when I started, I got really, I think, the narrow high school version of it would have been I felt totally shrunk out by it. I was like, oh, this is so embarrassing. I, <laughs> I can't stand it. And then I realised I was just completely letting them down, that they expected me to turn up like Margaret Mayhew in the mm-hmm. Rainbow Wig. And I'm not going to do the dress-ups. I'm not turning up in jodhpurs, but I do turn up, and I am a different, larger-than-life version of me. It's not mm-hmm. me. It's like me on, on steroids sort of mm-hmm. thing. And I deliver what they wanted, and then we're both happy. Um, and it took me a while to get to that point. And then I started to stop thinking about performing and being what they wanted. And I started actually enjoying hanging out with the kids and noticing that they were all these weird, kooky little characters, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and you can kind of look around a classroom and you can say, you're going to be an accountant and you're going to be a vet and you're, you're definitely, you're going to be a creative dancer. <laughs> and and I started really enjoying the environment and playing off the kids and and suddenly I found touring to be a lot more fun because I I kind of got over my self-consciousness and just started really having fun with it. But it is quite weird. You know, I'm, I'm like one direction for eight-year-olds yeah. and that does my head in. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's a, in a business sense, it's a renewable resource. There's always another <laughs> crop of eight-year-olds and all the books are in the library. And so, you know, the teachers know that it's great for them. And so, you know, you can probably keep... Um, that's probably where... I mean, I guess I should, is that where publishing gets to be quite good when you do have you become um, one of the classics, which is very much where you're sitting. Well, and it's interesting though, isn't it? Because I think people have an assumption that a bookstore like Paper Plus um, must be the size of like a, the iCloud storage units in the desert because they think that your books will always be in there. But unless you keep producing books, and unless those books keep selling, they don't stock your backlist. And the holy grail for an author is backlist. Mm. If you can go into a bookshop and buy not just one of my books, but they have 10 on the shelves in a bookshop, then I'm making money. But to have 10 books on the shelf, you have to be a proven performer because you're taking up space that other books could be in, and they have limited shelf space. So that is why backlist, you know, you'll say, someone will say, oh, I, I thought I'd get my kid a copy of Black Beauty. And I'll say, well, you know, go, go, to, go to the library or you'll have to order it online. I'll <laughs> oh, just go down to Paper Plus. Well, they won't have it. Mm. They don't always have the classics. You know, there, there will be certain books that are still in there. And it's remarkable that Pony Club Secrets ha- has been a series that's, that's continued to be stocked for this length of time. And now that the TV series is happening, mm. it will be um, still stocked again, which is yeah. fantastic for me. And let, let's chat about the TV series as... Like, is that a big day for, and I mean, you've made this world, all these worlds, and people have come and spent time with them and you, uh, with, with, with you in them. Um, is it like exciting, but also scary that maybe the TV world might not match up to what you want or might not capture it or, yeah, or, or is it a great thing to have um, your, your, your uh fiction made into a TV series. Oh, it's a great yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. No, there's no two ways about it. It's a great thing. But that is also because I think right from the get-go, I felt like Libertine, um, who are the producers here, had totally, um, they, they had got the mojo of it completely right and they were taking it in the right direction. And I would, you know, frequently we would have catch-up meetings and they'd tell me where things were at and they were giving me early pilot episodes that Beth and Amy had written. And we were talking through the fact that certain things had to change and that they were taking it in this direction and that direction. And so I, 
it didn't sneak up on me. You know, I, I knew where they'd got to. And um, and I felt so confident that it was going to be good that I, I put my hand up and said, look, I, I'd like to write a couple of episodes. I feel like that would be me, you know, kind of giving it my blessing and also expanding for me my, my skill set to, mm-hmm. to kind of get involved with working on in television, which I hadn't done before. And I just, everyone I looked at on the team, I thought, no, these people are, are really going to produce great work here and I think it is a good show I think it's an incredibly solid show um, and it in no way is it is ref- directly reflective of the books but for me because I'd gone through the process that didn't bother me and also you know you just it's a complete miracle ball that it ever gets over the line you know you hear so many stories and my favorite would be the princess bride which of course um, the author of that it had taken 10 years for that to get off the ground and he was actually on set one day waiting for filming to start, and they shut it down. <laughs> and in the end, <laughs> um, that was when Rob Reiner picked up the option, and, you know, it's one of, the, it's one of my favourite movies of all time. It's, you know, and you can't imagine it being any way other than how it was. So, I mean, Pony Club Secrets had been optioned before, and Libertine had had the option, I think, probably for nearly five years by the time principal photography began. Um, and we got in just before COVID became so... Um, you know, the, before we went into level four lockdown, we had eight episodes in the bag, which um, those are the ones that are screening now. And fingers crossed, everything being equal, they start filming the final five episodes at the end of this month. And, you know, then they look forward to the future and see whether they'll go into production on a season two. Oh, it's, it's had a great reception, though, so far, hasn't it? And and it was a co-production between, you know, BBC Children's, which are... That sounds pretty cool to get, get a call one day to say, hey, BBC want to make uh, your book into a world. I, yeah, I know. Because BBC, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. When you're a little kid, that's like, you know, that's proper. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they've been actually, BBC have been fantastic to work with on a, yeah. on a script writing level. Their notes um, back to us were always really sound. Um, and they were sort of the driving force in it being an envir- environmental thriller. Um, and... You know, they've brought so much diversity to the screen in, the, in that series too. And, you know, that's all been driven by the parameters they put in place. And it's a great thing. You know, they've, they've been terrific. And, you know, it is, it is quite cool to see, you know, that logo flash up on, on the screen on, on, on the product you've produced. And, yeah, I, it's, it's, it's a great association. Oh, that's so cool. And a couple of... Um... Uh, a couple of questions that we like to ask everyone before we wrap up. One would be, what would your advice be to someone who maybe is sitting in a successful career and thinks, actually, I want to do this. I want to I want to change career. I want to write a book. I want to make something happen. What would your advice be to them? Uh, uh, my first advice probably would be, don't quit the job. <laughs> uh, plan a slow exit based on low, you know, low returning royalties. Um, investigate the market that you're going to be in and think about, you know, I, if someone says to me, you know, I've, I've, I want to write a book and I say, well, what sort of genre and what sort of age is it for? Oh, it's for everyone. Well, then you're going nowhere because when you go into Paper Plus, they don't take your book and put it on the shelf marked everyone. They take it and put it on a shelf mark YA or junior fiction or picture books or supernatural or and you can mix up genres but you can't mix up too many genres at once and look and see what's already there are you kind of being a me too to something that you know 
dystopias are over, YA is kind of over at the moment. I wouldn't be trying to work in those areas right now because you won't get the publishing deal. It won't necessarily be about whether you're a great writer. It'll be about whether a publishing house sees the idea as having um, a freshness and a merit or as a quick enough me too to other things in the market and has enough unique qualities for them to, to sell it. And it'll be about them looking at you and going, have you got the chops long term to be an author? Because they're not interested in investing in one-offs. Um, publishing houses, they're businesses and they look at you and they go, could you have a career with us? Could you? Because training up an author to manage themselves through the process, because people are quite distraught with their first book, I think, often. You know, that the, the, the editor's actually gone through and told them to chop out half the chapters and that their lead character's terrible. And, you know, and th this is the feedback you will get as a professional author. You know, these things will happen to you. You need to be robust enough to handle that. And that's partly a, an upskilling process for a lot of people. They're not going to bother to do that for you, for your one book you've got in you. They will do that if you have a future with them because then they've got you up to speed and from then on in every book that you do with them, you will hopefully get better at delivering and make their lives easier, you know, so that you're good to work with. I am always good to work with. I deliver on time. I'm respectful of my editors. I work well with art department. It's a job, you know. You, you're trying to make their jobs better, not be a prima donna. And there's just really not, you know, you won't get away with it. They won't give you another contract. So... You have to think about whether you've got what it takes to kind of self-manage. <laughs> I sound like I'm talking to a primary yeah. school child. <laughs> but it is that. You yeah. have to be able to kind of – and some people, you know, are, are great with that and some people just – you've got to know yourself a bit. If you're not the sort of person that can sit in a room by yourself for three months with no feedback and produce something or six months or a year – Without anyone telling you you're marvellous and at the end of the day still don't tell you you're marvellous, then it might not be your gig. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. If you want to be a tortured artist, you probably can be tortured. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> and and as, a, as a last thought, like what will success be for you? As, you know, like um, millions of children have read and loved the box, millions of sales, uh, you know, great TV series uh, showing around the world, um, quite remarkable achievements and Know, where, what will success be for you uh, at, at the end of the kind of pony cubs journey? Um, well, I think I've been lucky in that my successes have always been gradual stepping stones, and I think it would have been super dangerous to be one of. The, I, I almost feel for <laughs> sounds ironic. I almost feel for people that knock it out of the park with like a Da Vinci Code situation, where you you know then have to spend the rest of your life sort of struggling to meet that single one book, you know, um, that sort of Kerry Hume situation that you that you have. I think, you know, with the luminaries, Eleanor Catton was really clever because she didn't just go, I'm going to put out another book. How do you follow up on a Booker Prize winning novel? You move into film and do that instead, you know, and, and take your career in that direction. So I don't know, I just, if, if I'd been too fortunate and too, too sort of idly rich at the start, I don't think the work would have been as good. I think the fact that I've always been quite, you know, I depend on this for my living and I need to keep producing the goods every time has probably played to my benefit. But what I find now is that the TV show and the success of the book so far has afforded me the luxury that I can kind of take a more broad scope of where my career goes next and go, okay, this is the area I'd like to work in. 
I can afford to dabble in that for a couple of months. May or may not pay off, but I'll still be all right. And and that's probably, you know, a really nice place for a mid-career author like me to be in where I feel like I can afford to take a few risks and it's probably time for me to take a few risks and try new stuff. That's so cool. Oh, well, so looking forward to seeing what's next. And thank you so much for coming and sharing of your time and story so generously today. It's been so lovely to chat. Oh, it's, it's uh, been fun. Good, <laughs> good question, Great Simon fun. Pound. You are, <laughs> you're the bomb. Uh, thanks, Stacey Greig. Thank you, Stacey Greig, uh, author, for joining us. Uh, thank you to Tina Diller for producing. Uh, and thank you very much for having us along in your ears. Cheers. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. Brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.